Welcome to the Talberg Foundation podcast series, New Thinking for a New World. Host Alan Stoga welcomes leaders from around the world to explore the issues that are challenging and changing their societies. From climate change to democracy under siege to geopolitics and beyond, we are looking for ideas that can make all our lives better. Since the onset of the pandemic, much of life, school, office, shopping, entertainment, even exercise, has shifted from the real world to the virtual world. For many, it has been a painful, frustrating experience. For others, it has been liberating and highly productive. Today, we're going to explore both sides of that coin with someone who thinks about it for a living. My guest is Jamie Teven, Chief Scientist for Microsoft's Experiences and Devices, where she is helping Microsoft create the future of productivity. Welcome, Jamie. Thanks, Alan. Nice to be here. Let's start with the challenge facing all of us, that pandemic pushed an enormous portion of our daily lives online. What, if anything, has surprised you about this sudden shift from real to virtual that has been the 2020 story literally around the world? (laughs) You know, that's a funny question, Alan, because pretty much things have been changing and evolving so quickly that what surprised us uh, nine months ago doesn't necessarily surprise us anymore. You know, initially it was just surprising that people could actually work while remote, that it was possible to get things done. Actually, people were um, not only working, but they were showing up more productive. People were getting more done. Um, one type of work that's fairly easy to track um, in, in some ways is developer productivity. So you can look at the number of bugs that people check in or the number of pulls that people do from the repository. And we saw that those numbers uh, were going up. Um, And that was surprising to a lot of people for whom, you know, in-person face-to-face work was really the gold standard. As we've moved along, however, new things have started to surprise us. Um, Then we started getting surprised. There was actually, this productivity was coming at a real cost, that people were working longer hours, people were working on the weekends, people were having a hard time finding boundaries between uh, what they were doing. And, um, you know, we continue to be surprised even now, actually, as, uh, some, some places around the world are opening up, uh, opening up for people to go back to -to face-to-face work. It's also interesting to see how much people really value some of the aspects that come with remote work and, um, are really interested in this hybrid way of working that is, um, coming into being. Well, you've just touched on one of the known unknowns, which is how much of whenever, new normal exists, how much of what we've gone through in 2020 will be part of that new normal? Many companies, not just in the United States, but around the world, are contemplating futures that are much less about nine to five or even offices and and lots of customer interaction across the whole transaction chain clearly are likely to remain virtual. As you guess the kind of world that's going to come out the other end of this, what are the major elements of it, do you think? We've certainly got more time where COVID will be forcing changes in work practice ahead of us. But uh, looking forward, when that is no longer uh, the kind of dominant factor, we're still going to see pretty significant changes in how people work. Uh, One of the things that's been interesting about the past nine or 10 months is that we've really seen a lot of traditional work boundaries breakdown. And so the most obvious one is this breakdown across space, 
where it doesn't matter where you're working. You can work from home. You can work from work. Of course, it matters a lot because the space you're in matters. There's, you know, dogs and kids and construction happening all the time. Where you work still matters, but we're able to accommodate a much broader range of places where people work. Um, but some other boundaries that we've seen break down that are, that are pretty interesting as well, that are likely going to have a long-term impact is we're also seeing boundaries break down across time where uh, it's becoming increasingly easy to collaborate across different time zones and, and to work at different times. You know, for example, one of my kids yesterday had a gingerbread making activity with his class and his school had sent home a kit. And so he takes up his gingerbread kit and is starting to make, make his gingerbread house with his class. And it turns out the icing that comes in the kit isn't pre-made. It actually needs, you need to go whip egg whites, mix the sugar in and add some lemon juice. And it was pretty cool to be able to be, it was stressful also, <laughs> but, but pretty cool to be able to you know, stop what I was doing and go engage with him and have a little bit of gingerbread house making time um, with him. Um, and, you know, I think we're increasingly seeing work bridging across these synchronous and asynchronous boundaries. Um, you know, you can start thinking about attending meetings asynchronously. So what does it mean if I have a meeting to attend in China and it's going to be in the middle of the night and I'd really ideally be sleeping? Uh, things that I'm actually starting to do is if I have a little presentation about some research that I'm going to give at that meeting, I can record that presentation, share it. That, that recording can get played with the meeting. There's in-meeting chat and that meeting is recorded. So I can then get access to all of that conversation that happens around my presentation later and respond to that in the chat or respond to that via email or respond to it in some other asynchronous form as well. Um, we're also seeing things increasingly turn into uh, live synchronous conversations where we may be working together on a document and I'm in that document making edits and I see that you're in there as well, Alan. And so we both then would decide to chat spontaneously. Um, I guess the final boundary that I think is important that's breaking down is um, the boundaries between your personal life and your home life. Like you're no longer necessarily leaving your space to get to work. Uh, so there's, the, so you, you have those work cues going on then all the time in your personal space and you actually have home cues going on all the time in your, in your workspace. And it becomes really challenging. It, it has these beautiful things where you can have lunch with your family, or you can take a walk in the middle of the day. You can control your own schedule, but it also has these challenges where you feel, feel like you're always on and it's hard to shut down or do other things. So you're talking about the breakdown of boundaries and there's two directions I'd like to take that. One is that boundaries Breaking boundaries could well be a luxury item for some people. Some people need boundaries. Uh, they need boundaries to function. And indeed, I, I guess I would argue that some companies, some schools, some organizations need those boundaries to function, or at least the social organization that we have going into this moment is one that is based, for better or worse, on boundaries of space-time the work-life balance, as my friends in France call it. As those get erased, if that's what's going on, 
aren't there potentially some interesting social consequences? Are our organizations built for that erasure, erasure of boundaries that you, uh, you've just described and, and is, in fact, what we're all living with at the moment? Oh, we absolutely need boundaries. You're 100% right. It doesn't, it's not just some people. Every single one of us needs boundaries. And so the breaking down of boundaries has been a challenge. The cool thing is that boundaries were previously artificially structured, artificially set. And what we have now is this opportunity to intentionally create the boundaries that are the right ones for us. You know, so if, you know, before we had time, temporal boundaries about when we worked and you'd go into the office at nine and you'd leave at five and you wouldn't work on weekends. But now if I want to have lunch with my children every day, I can change those boundaries. If I am not a morning person and I prefer the evening time, I can work then instead. So we can absolutely now control those boundaries. The challenge is one, setting, figuring out how to set our own boundaries. And then as a group, as a collective, figuring out how we mediate those different boundaries across different people. But isn't that a luxury item? Isn't, doesn't, that description doesn't fit, I suspect, most people in the United States today and most people around the world today who uh, are not empowered to set those boundaries or even invited into a conversation about those boundaries. I'm thinking of, of the great middle class that um, really are takers rather than givers of those kinds of decisions. Well, so about half of the people in the United States are able to work from home and about half of the people aren't able to work from home. And so there's certainly differences and different concerns with the pandemic on work practices as a function of whether you, you're required to be in person for work or whether you can work from home. There, there's a big opportunity that we have to help support uh, people who aren't traditionally information workers. One of the things that's really interesting is we've actually seen an increasing amount of work that you wouldn't think is information work become information work. So an, an example of that is I tweaked out my back and was working with a trainer to try and do some exercises to strengthen my back muscles. And uh, I was going in person for that. And then when the pandemic hit, I started doing that um, remotely instead over a Teams meeting. And it was cool to see that that experience of working with the trainer was actually a uh, information work. I had thought it was a physical task, but it was actually an information task where we were engaging in. You know, not all information work is actually information work uh, previously and has become information work. So if you think about meetings, normally technology was sitting on the side in those meetings. And we, if we were meeting, we would be engaging face-to-face. -face, and maybe if we wanted to share a document or share a deck or look something up, we'd go to our computers. And now every aspect of this conversation is being mediated. So even though I am an information worker, much of my job was not information work. We're now seeing that, that much more of my job is information work as well. And we certainly are seeing companies lean in to uh, allow their employees to embrace the flexibility that comes with remote work and working from home. A few moments ago, you said that one of the things that you observed over the course of this year has been an increase in productivity in, in a lot of cases, but that it also brings costs. I'd like to talk about those costs, but I'd also like to understand how you're thinking about productivity, which of course is what you 
you do for a living for Microsoft. So how is productivity uh, improving and what are the consequences of it and what are the costs of it? It's a super useful question, try to define productivity, because I actually define productivity a little bit differently than most people. And I think that's an important thing to clarify. So sort of historically, we've thought about how technology can help people's productivity in terms of how it can help people get more stuff done, right? Like we build tools that allow you to write better documents and make prettier presentations and calculate numbers faster. You're basically doing more faster. Um, and there's been pretty amazing shifts in how we're able to support that with this current digital transformation where we can start, um, you know, and, and, and with the advent of AI as well, where we can start thinking about how to, how to support those processes more. But we've also increasingly seen that our tools are impacting our productivity in another way as well. So it's not just what we go and tell the tools to do. The tools are actually influencing what we choose to do. And we're sort of most familiar with this, with these like engagement loops of online services where, where uh, online sites figure out how to use all of the tricks in the book to get you to come visit the site. So you go and engage with that content, produce content, um, you know, and view their ads. And, and that's, that's one way that tools are influencing what we choose to do. You know, they're getting me addicted to my favorite phone game, uh, Gardenscapes, or they're getting me to read the news and Twitter all the time. Um, but once we recognize that we have that ability both to um, help people do what they want to do and to help influence people's uh, how people do that, we can start becoming more intentional about how we do that. And so our definition of productivity has really expanded from thinking about merely how we help people do stuff to how we help people get in the right frame of mind, help people achieve their goals. There's another definition of productivity, which is the economist definition, which is more output per unit of input. And so we look at the productivity of society as a whole. Uh, we look at the productivity of individual parts of that society. And, and the obvious question is whether and how these tools are making, or if they're making society more productive, and then after that, happier, wealthier, are we becoming more productive? In fact, that, that particular framing is actually useful for viewing this notion of what do the tools help us do versus how they influence what we think, uh, what we do, and, and how we do it, and what we choose to do. You can think of intentionally improving the tools to help us get more stuff done as decreasing the amount of input to produce a, a unit of output. We're essentially increasing the efficiency of the system. In contrast, when we're setting people up to bring their best selves to the tasks that they're doing, we're increasing their ability to produce output the way they think about things. We're, we're changing that whole formula. We're making it so that a unit of you know, so that a unit of input shows up in a different way. It's sort of a fundamental shift to the system. Well, in fact, to the point, economists would argue that productivity in the United States has stagnated for a while. It's one of the great mysteries of um, public policy is whether or not these tools are making us more productive in, the, in, in that sense. 
Um, and then the corollary to that, of course, if it's making us more productive, just as during the Industrial Revolution led to shorter work weeks, this productivity revolution that partly, in fact, you're leading should eventually lead to the possibility of people working a lot less. Do you think that's true? Well, I think that it's going to fundamentally change the way that people work. And I think it's really important to start thinking about like the impact. So up until recently, largely, as I was saying, tools help us do what we're trying to do more, a little bit better, a little more efficiently. And a big change we've seen in recent years is um, basically our tool's ability to observe and learn from the behavior that people do. And so it becomes less about like doing exactly what I want to do and more about capturing my intent and figuring out how I'm going to um, move on from there. And then that opens up this really interesting space where what people contribute isn't necessarily just the doing the stuff, but it's the thinking about stuff. And so I actually think increasingly human productivity is going to be about uh, new ways of thinking and that that requires actually caring for our well-being, caring for our mental health, more ways of thinking. So like you could say both because society gets more productive, we're likely to need to work less, but also as society gets more productive for people to really realize their potential and help the world in a better way, it's going to be fundamentally important that we spend time learning, that we spend time reflecting, that we spend time you know, thinking about other things and mulling on stuff in the back of our heads. That is fundamentally revolutionary because for at least the last, pick it, 100 years, not just Americans, but most people in most places define themselves by their work. What do you do? I'm an engineer. I'm a truck driver. I'm a scientist. Um, as the world you've just described, which could be, a, could be the world we're headed towards, the nature of work, the nature of identity begin to shift. Uh, because in that world, which is a world I'd like to live in, um, in that world, you're not defined by what you do, how you earn your income. Uh, but that that's a fundamentally different place. That That is sort of post-enlightenment kind of world. It, it, it is, in the best sense of these words, a brave new world, perhaps. Yes, although to be fair, like a large portion of people don't work. And so they're not already defining themselves by what they do. You know, I define myself by what I do, but I also define myself as a mom to four kids. I define myself as a friend and a daughter. I define myself as a person, you know, who has her own interests and desires. So I would, I would say some people define themselves by what they do, but I, I would challenge that as sort of a truism for right now. Um, that being said, one of the things that we are seeing in the way that people approach work is a pretty significant interest in not just what they do and not just figuring out or defining what we do, but being able to ladder what we do up to a higher meaning, you know, what, what, what is going on there? Why do things, why is what I'm doing matter? 
you know, the more that we can help people bring their best selves to the things that they do, and that can be work tasks, that can be personal tasks, that it's about what matters to you. And it's not about doing more of everything. It's about doing more of the important stuff. And I think that ability to help people do that is what is the real transition that we'll be seeing. Let's segue to education for a moment. Um, You have four children uh, and I have four grandchildren. So I am intensely curious about the impact of this shift to online teaching, online learning. Uh, There are studies floating around. McKinsey just published something, for example, which I suspect is based on pretty sketchy data that suggests a dramatic negative impact from the online experience. Does that make sense to you? I think in education, just like in all ways that human interaction are changing right now, it's helping us become super explicit about what our goals are. You know, thoughtless collaboration, no matter how it is mediated, is still thoughtless collaboration. And there's nothing that technology can use to support that. And in school, I think that there is a very important primary goal going on in school that has gotten lost with the move to remote schooling, remote education, that is important for us to make explicit and actively support. Um, and that is the social and emotional growth that kids are going through. You know, we think it's about learning U.S. history or calculus. And in reality, that doesn't matter at all. What matters is that they learn how to interact, they learn how to communicate, they learn how to deal with challenges, and they learn how to um, how to think critically about things. And I think we've seen some of those things become more explicit in the curriculum. And my hope is looking forward that we will see even, even more of that become more explicit in the curriculum. And I expect, you know, education is going to change really significantly too. And when we look at work and the places that are starting to come back into work, we're seeing hybrid work being pretty awesome. And I think as we start figuring out how to make hybrid education work, as well. That's going to be great. I mean, and there were, there, this was already a trend that was happening where you were seeing with flipped classrooms, where a lot of the like lecture stuff was starting to happen outside of classes. And then classrooms were being used for more discussion. Uh, and I think as we start thinking too more about the social and emotional growth of kids as well and how, how they can be used for that. But I'm wondering if, if this process is moving faster than our capacity to cope with it. When going back to this particular McKinsey study, they're arguing that if everybody goes back to school in January, kids will have lost something like four months for the eight months of, of, of online learning. There's something not working about this educational experience for, if not most, many. And I'm, I'm thinking of younger kids more than college kids where the systems weren't ready and still aren't ready. How do we help? How, how do we make this educational transformation work? Or are we just going to hope, do you think, that everything goes back to the status quo ante of classroom as the, um, as the place education occurs? So I'm not an expert in education. So this is really me just speaking on, on, my, on my personal expertise as a mom. Um, you know, I absolutely, the thing that keeps me up at night is worrying about my children's 
school and their growth. And, you know, my, my kids are all preteens and early teenagers and they're, this is the fastest their brains are growing in their entire lives, except for when they were toddlers. And I want those brains to be growing in a way, you know, and safety and security are important for their brains growing well. Uh, exploration and trying new things is important for their brains growing well. All of those things are challenging. Absolutely. Fast, the fast pace of change that we have seen over the past 10 months, like that's not things changing things that fast is hard and it isn't necessarily the best way to do. It's a big disruption to the system. It's great opportunities, but it's a big disruption. I would argue though, one of the things I say to myself to feel better as I'm worrying about my kids is that, um, you know, there's a lot of stuff we don't measure. Like when we, when people are thinking about education, like, oh gosh, you know, what have they lost? And people are worried about them having lost like they're going to have to make up, read a couple more English books or something like that. They have learned an incredible amount that is going to be valuable to them as citizens in a, in a, in a global world where digital technology is important. Like, you know, they are experts at communicating remotely. They are experts at finding different ways to connect. Um, they've get, my kids actually, ironically, I, I sit and I sit and feel sad for them every day. Turns out they love it. And the reason they love it is because uh, we figured out that gaming is pretty much the only way that they engage with their peers at the moment. And so they have fairly unrestricted access to video games, which they think is the best thing in the world. Um, and I, I suspect that they are learning a lot of that social interaction and those things that, that I worry about from those sorts of things, um, in terms of gaming, but I hear you. It's hard. It's hard to change this fast. I mean, it's, I don't, nobody, nobody would have chosen it. Um, let, let the analog to that air quotes, loss of learning, um, may well be what everyone I know complain in, in the business world complains about, uh, zoom fatigue. Well, not a day goes by in which I don't hear someone complain about, I can't do another meeting online. I just can't stare at the screen anymore. Uh, I'm going crazy. Uh, Zoom fatigue. Yep. There's not a day I don't complain about it. <laughs> well, but, but that's my question. Is it real? And if so, is it just meeting fatigue? Is it two-dimensional versus three-dimension fatigue? Is it misuse of the tool? Um, people used to complain about meeting fatigue, and now they've just taken it online. Dude, there is so much to be fatigued about right now. It's hard to tell. I mean, I am pandemic fatigued. I'm tired of being at home and washing my hands all the time. I'm tired about worrying about the world. Uh, I am tired about worrying about the uh, my job and the you know the jobs of people I care about and people's safety and my kids. So, so, so to put that in, we are all fatigued in, in, in sort of a grand sense. And then meeting online meetings are exhausting as well. And there's a lot that we have to figure out. And there are things that we're, that we're starting to, um, starting to be able to address better. Uh, even, you know, so turn-taking is super challenging. It's in normal conversation. People talk over each other all the time. That's like a successful conversation involves interruptions, people talking at the same time with online meetings that just doesn't work. You know, we don't know how to have those, um, 
And, and some of that's a function of the audio and like half du duplex and some of the noise canceling and lag, but that's definitely not the whole story. You know, we're missing verbal cues. There's all sorts of body language and gestures and things that happen that will help with turn taking and with other things. You know, right now, if you were going to start talking, you might do an intake of breath that I'd hear, or you might shift your body in a way that, you know, so like I can get something from looking at your face, but I can't get all of that. Um, and we're also like another big thing that we're really missing in these meetings that makes it so much harder is reciprocity. You know, I don't know that just because I'm talking that you can hear. There's a loud noise in my background. You can't hear that. Like, that's weird. It makes the whole conversation a little bit different for me to be like mentally processing a large noise in the background and you not to hear it. And so all of those cues, that's just tiring. And then add to that, you've got a picture of yourself in front of you 24-7 where you have to be looking and you're constantly thinking about how you self-represent and what you're looking at. And like, that's challenging for all of us. And it's particularly challenging for people for whom self-presentation matters a lot. You know, if you're trans or non-binary, for example, you may care a lot about how you're presenting and you've just got this little box to do that. And if you're a, if you're a, you know, middle school kid, you probably care a lot about how you're presenting and having to look at yourself all the time. That's hard as well. So all of those things are super challenging. It's not surprising it's tiring to us. But if we're going to continue to live in this world, whether most of the time, part of the time, hybrid, etc., don't we have to solve that equation somehow? Yes, we do. We absolutely need to figure out how to help it. And like, there's going to be a bunch of solutions. And certainly one of the things that we are seeing from, from our offices in China where they're fully open is one way to solve it is to sometimes have face-to-face -face meetings. Um, there are other ways that we can, you know, so we've done one of the things that's really cool about being at Microsoft through this whole thing is that as people's work practices have been changing, basically the company was already set up to understand people's work practices, right? We've got tons of telemetry data. We've got Microsoft Research that's done 30 years of research on people's work practices. We have all sorts of instruments set up with our customers that allow us to meet, work closely with our customers to understand how they're using our tools and how they're working. We have surveys. We're a large company. We have studies that we do on our own um, to understand our employees by HR or by our uh, facilities to understand how we use the space. So we had all these sensors. And when work practices changed, we were able to like deploy all of these sensors and run basically the world's largest study on remote work and changing work practices. And so we've seen all these challenges we've been talking about, but we've also had the opportunity to see what's working and what people are doing that works well and how to get over things. So some of it is hybrid work where people can come in face-to-face. -face. Some of it is thinking about how to add additional cues into these online meetings. How do we get spatial audio so that we understand where people are talking from? How do we create portals into what people are doing so that you can sort of be co-present while not actively working together? Um, how do we take advantage of video recording and asynchronous work so that we don't need as many meetings? Not all of the meetings we need are active around communication. How do we support social engagement 
in meetings? How do we actively support turn-taking so that people know when it's their time to talk, even if there are missing verbal cues, even when there is issues with lag or noise cancellation? Um, so there's all sorts of things that we can be doing. We absolutely have to figure. You can bet that is our top priority is figuring out how to do that. And there have been all sorts of good things that have come from these meetings as well that will be super interesting. Like almost a dual of that is at some point when we move back to work, what does it look like to start supporting um, some of the cool stuff that we've captured while through these online meetings in our physical face-to-face meetings? And how do we still keep remote members of a meeting as first-class citizens? It's cool. You're in a large meeting. One of the things I've found I do, I have a hard time with people's names and faces. I'm not set up well for that. I love that I can see everybody's name under their little square. When somebody's talking, I can see they're talking and then I can start referring to them um, directly. I've learned more names. Um, I'm able to connect more closely. That's awesome. How do we keep that sort of thing uh, in meeting chat? has become super popular. It's used 10 times more where the sidebar in the meeting, you can make comments. It's a great way to add contextual information, new information without interrupting the speaker. It's a great way for people uh, lower down on the hierarchy to get heard, to be able to contribute to a meeting when actually speaking and taking control of the floor can be a challenge. Uh, It's a great way to create an archive of the meeting as well and sort of serve as a bit of a asynchronous piece of that meeting that's in conjunction with the synchronous meeting. Um, So there's all these great things that we want to figure out how to carry over and keep um, keep using. You've just touched on something which is an important part of Telberg's approach to the world. We're ending with a whole long list of questions that probably exceed the answers we have. And that is uh, that is how the Telberg Foundation continues to try to push the ball forward. So I want to thank you, Jamie, for this conversation, for all of those questions. And I am sure that as this reality continues to evolve, we'll have to come back and get some more answers to some of those questions. So thank you very much. Thank you, Alan. It's exciting to be have these hard questions to answer. Thank you for listening to this episode of the New Thinking for a New World podcast. We welcome your comments on our website, talbergfoundation.org, and please subscribe to the podcast in the app of your choice. This podcast was made possible with the generous support of the Stavros Niarchos Foundation.